The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. If you want to find your way this morning to Romans chapter 3, that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Just kind of by way of reminder where we're at this morning, we are... uh, in a kind of short mini-series as we're looking at the law and gospel. We're kind of moving toward a study through the uh, book of Deuteronomy. And as we're kind of about to get into that book in just a few weeks, uh, I think it's important for us to have a a refresher on the role of the law in the life of the believer, to to understand uh, the law, to understand what what remains, what has been fulfilled, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks, what has been abrogated or, or put aside. So last week we looked at the, the law and the covenant of works. And this week, this Sunday, we're looking at justification by faith alone. The next time we're together on this topic, we'll be looking at the law as a rule of life in the believer. And then we'll consider the divisions of the law as we look at moral, ceremonial, and civil law, which will be especially important for us as we walk through Deuteronomy. But last Lord's Day, we looked at the law and the covenant of works, and we we saw from from Genesis that as God created Adam, he he put he he came into covenant, a covenant relationship with Adam, and what we commonly call the covenant of works, or maybe sometimes the covenant of life, or the covenant of creation. And As we saw, the law was written on Adam's heart, but there was an an outward uh, kind of symbol of his obedience to God put in the garden, in the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we know the story from Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we saw last week that it was really a sin of unbelief. Because as God had promised them everlasting life by following his commandments, the the serpent, Satan, came in and and he deceived Eve and he caused Eve and Adam, who was with her, to doubt the promises of God, to doubt what God said was true. So in their unbelief, they, they gave in to their own appetites and they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We saw that God then drove them away, drove them out of the garden, away from the tree of life. And really, we we ended on this significant point that God drove them away, as it were, from following the law as a covenant of works to regain, to be reconciled to to him through the covenant of works. He said, that has been done. That That has failed because you are in Adam and all have sinned in Adam, as we'll see this morning, there's, it, it, it's futile to chase after the covenant of works, thinking that somehow by the works of the law, you will be made right with me. So he puts them out of the garden. And he said, he, he gave them the promise from Genesis three fifteen of of the hero, the mediator who would come to crush the serpent's head. And that is what they were to be looking forward to this hero, the mediator, the Messiah, the Christ, who would come and do what they could never do because of Adam's failure. 
We saw last week that the kind of the, if you're going to give a motto to, to works of the law, by the, the, the covenant of works, it's do this and live. And the idea there is if you do this perfectly, perpetually, personally, if you do these things, then you will enter into everlasting life. Well, ever since Adam failed, do this and live is quite a crushing statement. As we, as we saw then last week flashing forward to Matthew 19, as the, the rich young man comes to, to Christ and he says, how, what must I do to have everlasting life? And we saw Christ just kind of presses the law upon this man. He doesn't come to him with, with the gospel because the man didn't see his need for the gospel. So Jesus impressed upon him the law, and the man went away sorrowful. The re- disciples' response to that whole scene, as Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. The response of the disciples ought to be the response that we have, who then can be saved? It wasn't for them. They, they realized what Jesus was saying. They weren't simp- he wasn't simply saying it's, imp- it's impossible for rich people to be saved. God blesses many people with wealth and many people with wealth honor him with it. They realize that all they have is his. What he's saying, the, the impression and this conversation that he had with this rich young man was that no one can be justified by the works of the law. We will all, as we'll read this morning, all fall short. So who then can be saved? Well, last week, as I tried to push that down upon you, kind of to help us sit in that realization of the impossibility of us being saved by works of the law, as it were, through a covenant of works, we come this morning to God's remedy of our problem. How then can we be saved? How can we be reconciled to God? Let's pray and, and we'll read our text this morning together. Father, as we come before uh, your word this morning, first I just praise you that you are holy and just and good. We praise you that you show us your, your standard of perfection. It's the, your law that is a reflection of your perfect nature. We praise you for those things. But as we consider your law, we understand just how far we do fall short of it, how far we fall short of your glory, how wicked we are, how evil and sinful we are, how deceptive our hearts are. Father, as we look at the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that you would help us all, even those who have been been under the, the teaching of your word for the entirety of their lives, or those who are just hearing it for the first time this morning, I pray that it would be impressed upon our hearts deeply that we would see our great need for Christ, that we would see the beauty of the gospel, that we would flee from anything um, that we would somehow claim as our own. 
Father, as I consider just our congregation this morning, I, I pray for those who are sick. I pray for healing, uh, that, that you would restore health, restore uh, them to our congregation. Father, I pray uh, just for the, the spiritual health of our church, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us uh, to maintain the spirit of unity that you've given us in Christ. We would strive for peace and forgiveness, that we would uh, strive to, to love one another as, as you have loved us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we know that even in that, we fall far short, and yet we strive. Strengthen us in these ways, Father, I pray as we come under your word this morning that you would indeed help us to see ourselves as under your word. Your word is our authority. Humble us under it so that we would hear your voice and obey. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is Romans 3. We're going to be beginning in verse 19 and reading through the first eight verses of chapter 4. Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
kind of the common question as, as uh, you've maybe heard through very various uh, maybe programs on evangelism, question you may have been asked on the street maybe someday, maybe a question you just consider is, if you were to stand before God right now, if you were to stand before him, what account would you give to him of why you can be reconciled to him? What is it that we hold on to so dearly that we might think that maybe, just maybe, this one little part of my life I could present before God and he would say, well done. Yeah. Your righteousness brings you before my throne of grace. Well, even saying that right there kind of throws the whole thing out. It doesn't, it's not a throne of grace if you're accepted by your works. And this is the whole point that Paul is spelling out as he's been working through this, this epistle to the Roman church. He has built this case first by, by looking at those kind of wicked Gentiles, which all of us here probably can raise our hands and say, yeah, we're in that, we're in that group. He points to this, the, the sin of the Gentiles, kind of building this case up so the Jewish believers would say, yeah, yeah, those are sinners. Those are definitely sinners. And he builds this case up, and then he, he shines the light over on the Jewish believers and says, you, too, are guilty. Paul builds throughout Romans this, this case showing their, their, their guilt and then God's grace. And then later on in the book, the, the gratitude that the believer shows to God because of grace. And in Romans here, he kind of asks this, I think as we read, read the text, we have to ask ourselves that question. What would we do if we stood before our holy God? How could we give an account of him? Well, the passage says in verse 19, every mouth may be stopped. You read any account in scripture of someone standing before God, and that's exactly what happens. Mouths are stopped. You see, when we stand before the holiness of our God, we immediately, even if we thought we had something to offer to reconcile ourselves, to justify ourselves before him, his holiness shuts our mouths. We, like Isaiah, put our hands over our mouth, say, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I am ruined. We cannot stand before God based on any righteousness of our own. We sometimes, I think, if we kind of consider As, as we oftentimes in our church, you know, we might think of certain mottos that we say we, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we, and we hold to those things. But I think it's a healthy thing for us to search our own hearts 
to search for any seeds of self-righteousness, to search for, for any, any little fruit that we might be trying to grow that we say is our own, that's something that's outside of Christ, something that we can put before him. We oftentimes fall into the trap of comparison. We look at one another, we, we say, well, I'm at least better than so-and-so. Is it really easy to do that if you, if you uh, maybe turn the 10 o'clock news on? For, for the few times that my wife and I might be watching live TV these days, something in a 9 o'clock hour and the 10 o'clock news comes on and it's a rush for the remote to turn it off because we don't want to end our night on such depressing news. But oftentimes it's those sort of things that we can find those seeds of self-righteousness as we see kind of what we might view as the worst of society coming out in the 10 o'clock news, you think, well, at least I am not like that. That if we consider those things, that is exactly what Paul here in Romans is trying to steer us away from. We can't compare ourselves to others. There is nothing that we can stand before our holy God and boast in. And he begins where we started off last week in verses 19 and 20, showing us the law. The law is God's perfect standard. And it's, it's what we call the kind of the pedagogical use of the law or, or the law as our, as our teacher. The, the law shows us who we are. And when we think of the law as a, as a teacher, it's, probably good to think of, you know, my, my mind immediately goes to the, the, maybe the nun in the good Catholic, Roman Catholic school with the ruler. This is the law. You fail and you're getting wrapped across the knuckles. The law isn't the teacher that we wish we all had growing up who comes around and gets down at our level and puts her arm around us and softly works us through these things. The law is wrapping our knuckles. The law is constantly showing us that we are falling far short of the glory of God. As one writer, and I steal his illustration because it was so good, uh, David Murray, writing in uh, Table Talk magazine, talked about the law as, as a mirror. He says, very much like in the morning when we wake up and maybe after breakfast we go and stand in front of the mirror, might see that my, my hair is disheveled and I, I, need to, I need to comb my hair or I've got, I've got food in my teeth. I need to brush my teeth. Well, he, he says, very much like the, the mirror in our bathroom shows us the need for a comb or a brush and, and toothpaste and a toothbrush, Oftentimes we abuse the law by trying to comb our hair with the mirror itself or brush our teeth with the mirror. It doesn't work. He says the law is like a mirror. It reveals to us that we are wicked and sinful. That like the food stuck in my teeth, I am not perfect. I am far from perfect. It reveals then my need for Christ. 
But what we often do is instead of looking to Christ, looking for what we need, truly need to be reconciled to God, we take the mirror, the law, and we think that by using the law, we will somehow put ourselves in a place where we are justified before God. But it's the wrong use of the law. The law cannot reconcile us to God. The law is good. Even Paul here at the end of of chapter 3 says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And we'll even look at in uh, following weeks how the law is good and is sweet and how we can say along with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. But as soon as we take that and we somehow think that it's by the instrument of the law that we are made right before God, we are falling flat on our face. Even the works of the law after our salvation. For many of us, that's what we think. We're saved and we can say, oh yes, I am saved by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. But then I continue walking and I say, but I'm going to put on these little merit badges. I'm going to, I'm going to slap on these little merit badges of, good, of my good works of obedience to the law that somehow then when I stand before God, I'll be able to say, thank you for saving me. Now look at what else as makes me right before you. No. No. As we'll see, those are works that are done out of gratitude, but they don't bear any standing before God for righteousness. As Isaiah says, our righteousness is before God is as filthy rags. We cannot ever stand before God justified based on any works that we have. So how then are we justified by God? Well, Paul continues in verses 21 through 26 to show us that the righteousness by which we stand justified before God comes only through Jesus Christ. He says that this righteousness was even made known to us in the Old Testament scriptures where he says the the righteousness in verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You see, as we are getting ready to get into Deuteronomy, we, we don't say, oh, we don't need that anymore. That's the Old Testament. And we don't like things that are old unless we're antique collectors. Old is bad. We want, to, we want to get into new and exciting. We don't put the Old Testament away, but we read the Old Testament. We'll read Deuteronomy in its proper context as Scripture that pointed forward to our need for Christ. We'll see As I mentioned last week, even in Deuteronomy, the law and the gospel. So the Old Testament even testified to this righteousness that would come. And what is this righteousness? 
Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he goes on to describe this righteousness. Verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means a, a satisfaction that Jesus was put forward to satisfy God's holy wrath against our sins. And when I say our sins, you can go ahead and put in that category, my sinful righteousness. You see, Christ, the, the serpent crusher, the hero, had to come and fulfill the law, fulfill the perfect law of God on our behalf. Because Adam failed, and therefore we all fail in our sin and misery, the perfect had to come. The perfect had to come to step into humanity and do as it, what a mediator between God and man had to do to perfectly obey the law of God. As, as Philippians 2 so beautifully says, obeying even to the point of death and death on a cross. And that's where the, his propitiation came in. He, he had to satisfy God's wrath that although he had perfectly obeyed, although he had perfectly fulfilled the law, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I have come not to, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came and fulfilled the law in our place. And then died in our place. Although he had perfectly obeyed it and doesn't deserve to die, he took our sins upon him so that he would, be, would suffer the wrath, the holy and just wrath of his father for our sins. It's what theologians have called the great exchange. How he took our sins upon himself, and in return, his righteousness is imputed to us. It is counted to our record. It's as if our, our bank account and all the heaps and heaps of debt that we have accrued throughout all of our lives, all of a sudden that debt is wiped away. But better than that, far better than just our debt being wiped away, our account is filled to overflowing with the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. In his obedience and in his death, God shows himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, for God to be God, his justice must occur. He, can, he can't just simply set his justice aside. As I've said many times, he can't simply lift up the rug and, and sweep our sins and filthy righteousness under it and just pretend it didn't exist. To be God, he must punish our sin. And he did that in Christ. 
as the passage continues, we really have to wrestle with the difference then between faith and works. Our confessions define faith as knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. That means that we not only know the promises of God given to us in Scripture, but we assent to it. We believe it. We agree that it is true, and we trust. We sang this morning, it's been a favorite song of mine, because it's, I, I, love the, I love the Heidelberg Catechism and the, fr- and the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is what is our only hope or our only comfort in life and death? So we sang that song about Christ being our hope, our only hope both in life and death, body and soul. That's our, our faith that we are trusting in God This is the, I hope you're picking this up. This is the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Where God set his promise of eternal life before them. And gave them every tree in the garden to enjoy fully. Minus the one tree. And yet they chose to disbelieve him. They chose to doubt him. They chose not to trust him. And instead trust their own impulses our faith in christ is the exact opposite where we even in the 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 difficulties that we have in life even when we are suffering uh want when we are hurting when we see others hurting when we experience sin in our lives or sin in other people's lives it is a trust that constantly turns to god and says this is hard but I trust you. This is incredibly difficult and I feel like my soul is being crushed, but Lord, I trust you. I trust that your promises are true. I trust that your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That they are all, that he has so perfectly fulfilled the law in my place and so perfectly satisfied the debt that I owed that I cast all my cares and anxieties upon you and I trust you. I trust that your promises are true. Paul says that it's a gift. The salvation is a gift from God, and even our faith is a gift from God. It's, our faith is an instrument that God uses through, it's a, a gift from the Holy Spirit that brings us to new life so that we can have this saving faith. But you have to realize that as we read through this, you can't somehow put faith in the category of works. Because Paul is contrasting the two. There is no works that can put us before God. No, nothing that, can, uh, that we could stand before God and boast in. Faith excludes boasting, he says. We would have nothing to boast in. There's, there's nothing that we can apply to our account, not, uh, our account, not even faith. Not even that little merit badge of faith that we can say, hey, this justifies me before you. He gives us an example in Abraham in the first few verses of chapter 4. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6, God comes to Abraham and declares his covenant promise to Abraham. And Abraham believes God and God counted or credited it to him as righteousness. God justified Abraham by faith, not by a work. Otherwise, Abraham would have something to boast about. But by faith, faith in God's promise. We are called to the same thing. The same thing that was the standard to be able to stand reconciled or justified before God all the way back in Genesis. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, that standard, we are under it. And it's a standard of not presenting ourselves before God with anything that we can boast in, but only in Christ. We stand reconciled to God based on Christ's righteousness alone you see he's he's the object of our faith jesus christ is the object of our faith adam and eve needed to trust in god and his promises before they sinned and ever since they sinned it's that promise from genesis 3:15 on throughout the rest of scripture promising the savior to come and then as we see in the New Testament, the Savior who, who did come, who fulfilled all that he said he would fulfill from the Old Testament scriptures, he became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's having faith in him. It's, I, I know I've used the example before many times because I love it and it's such a, a, a sweet example D.A. Carson talking about the, the blood of the lamb at Passover painted across the posts. And it's not the, it's not the quality of, the, in, of the, those who dwell in that house. It's not the quality of their faith. It's not the quantity of their faith. It's not their confidence. It's not their doubting. What saved them when the angel of the Lord passed over? The blood of the lamb the blood on their doorposts. They could be in there sitting and eating, eating the flesh of that lamb, having that Passover meal, and shake, quite literally shaking and terrified. And when the angel of the Lord passed over, all were spared because of the blood. They could be in there quite confident, calm. Enjoying a meal with their family. And when the angel of the Lord passed over, same result. The blood was on the doorpost. And that is what we must have in our faith. Christ is the object of our faith. It's not about you. Now that is probably, especially in, in our Western culture, that is the most difficult thing for us to grasp. Because there is nothing in our lives that we gain apart from our works. If I want a relationship 
to flourish, I have to work at it. If I want money deposited in my bank account, I have to work for it. If I want the vegetables to grow in my garden, I have to work for it. Everything that we do is a, a labor. We must work and we don't get out from something unless we put into something. That's not just, that's, that in itself isn't a, a Western mindset. That's just humanity mindset. If we think about farming and gardening, that sort of thing, you have to put work in to get something out. Well, the gospel is exactly the opposite. God says, I am the one. I have put everything in. You are like Abraham who laid asleep as I passed through the pieces of the animals to, to make my covenant with you. It is about him. It's not about us. Verse 4 of chapter 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In our world, that turns everything upside down. And I appreciate what Josh said. The gospel is actually putting everything right side up. Very much like the garden with God said, I am providing you with everything. Simply believe in my promises. The gospel does that. He provides us with everything. He says, I've given you my own son. I haven't even spared my own son. So why would you think I, wouldn't, I would hold, withhold anything else from you? I've given it all. This is the, the objective reality of the gospel that we really do struggle with. That it is completely outside of us. That it is all what God has done. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones who says when, when you appropriately share the gospel, if you're not being accused of, accused of antinomianism, being against the law of God, then you're preaching it wrong. The gospel declares that God has done it all. The law says, do this and live. And the gospel is the voice of our Savior on the cross saying, it is finished. This is why we read statements in, from Galatians 3. This is the righteous shall live by faith. It's the opposite of do this and live. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, as we sit and struggle with this, maybe some more than others, as we think, no, there, there has to be something that I offer. There has to be something that I do. I just want to hold out to you this morning something that was just like justification in, in the Reformation that was fought over justification by faith alone. Assurance is something that is born out of this truth of justification by faith alone. Because you see, if, 
if I think that I have anything that I can present before God as my little merit badge saying that I am justified before you because of this, that yes, I'll give you God 99.9%, but I just want this little bit that says I did it. If we hold on to that, we don't understand the gospel and our assurance is lost. And again, this is the battle of the Reformation because the Christian under the Roman Catholic Church could not have assurance. There is no assurance But our confessions and scripture says, no, you can have assurance. We sang about it this morning. I was thinking of the passage in in Hebrews chapter 6, one of my favorite verses in scripture. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind a curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We cannot have that if we have the smallest degree of self-righteousness that we are, that we are uh, 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 giving to God. We cannot have that kind of assurance until we rest completely on Christ. I've shared at times my own, my own testimony of just not, of not knowing when I first believed. I was raised in a Christian home and there's not a time that I can think of when I didn't believe. Now at some point, The Holy Spirit regenerated me. The Holy Spirit gave me faith, but I just, there's not a point in time that I can point back at and say, this is when I believed. So it's been in in a way helpful for me because whenever I have doubted, I don't say, oh, well, I know I'm good because I walked an aisle back in the 80s. I have to constantly, whenever I have doubted, I say, I believe now. And I believe now that my Savior died for me over 2,000 years ago. And I believe now that God saved me before the foundations of the world because he elected me and put me in his book It is outside of me. It is completely outside of me and completely in God, completely in Christ. I cast it at his feet. I say, I come to him based on the merits of Christ alone, not on my own merits. So if you are prone to doubting, if you're prone to we might say navel-gazing and wondering, maybe even if our original profession of faith was genuine or whatever it might be, the question for you is, do you believe now? Do you believe today? It's not about 
your faithfulness. And this is what we so often get confused when we read the word faith in scripture, we immediately read into it faithfulness. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not about your faithfulness. The gospel is about Christ's faithfulness for you. That Christ obeyed his father to the point of death on the cross. Faith. We are justified by faith alone. You may wonder if we can somehow lose this salvation. And again, when we, when we ask that question about losing our salvation, again, we are beginning to look inward instead of at Christ. If we had something to do with it, we most certainly could lose our salvation. But we can't. We don't have anything to do with it. As the great refrain from Romans from the end of Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. I'm, I won't read it all here, but he goes through a whole list. There's nothing that can separate us from, Christ, from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even us. If we are in Christ, we are his. And he will never blot our name out of his book. Because it's Christ's blood Christ's life, Christ's atonement for us, Christ's perfect, perfect satisfaction of God's wrath for us. And if we are in Christ, then nothing can take us away from God's love for us in him. Again, the law says do this and live We who live by grace say that the righteous shall live by faith. We stand with Abraham and say, no work that I have done, but only what Christ has done. Our passage this morning ended from our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 23, 32, 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul points to this as saying David even spoke of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Paul pulls this passage out of the Psalms and says, look, the gospel was proclaimed even back then. Proclaimed in Abraham, proclaimed by the lips of David. Blessed is the man whose sins, whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is our great, our great hope, our only hope in life and death. When we recognize, when you recognize the sinfulness of your sin and the sinfulness of your filthy righteousness. You rip all those merit badges off and like Paul, you say, I count it as rubbish 
all those things that I had held on to, those good deeds that I had done, that I somehow made, I somehow have been keeping this account in my head that this is justifying me before God. Like Paul, we say in the face of the gospel, in the face of Christ, it is rubbish. Absolute garbage. And I rest in Christ alone. Now, though, next week we have a, uh, Don Schroeder preaching, but the week following we're gonna, we will be talking about the, rule, the, the role of the law in the life of the believer. And as Paul says, we don't, we don't, uh, set the, we don't overthrow the law. We uphold the law. And Paul is going to answer that you know, objection that he knows is coming through, through this crazy gospel that says, it's not about you. I shared that with someone once and got laughed at. Like, you, you gotta be kidding. Of course, it's, of course there has to be something that we do. And that's the objection that Paul begins to answer in, in chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We'll look at that in a couple weeks. For now, and as we turn our attention to communion, to the Lord's Supper, it's quite a fitting time for us. It's just as the children of Israel painted the blood of the lambs on the doorposts. This is an opportunity as we take of the elements of the bread and the juice that we ought to remember this this is a tangible a, a visible and tangible and something we taste a, a gift that God has given us to recognize that our faith is not faithfulness but trust knowledge assent and trust in the object of our faith in Jesus Christ so as the children of Israel had the blood on the doorposts. We have this to remind us it's not about you. As we take it, if, if you don't believe that message, I would encourage you not, not to take of the elements this morning. It is a family meal and it is a meal that is meant to be enjoyed by those who are in the faith. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But I do want to remind you, if you are sitting here this morning struggling with some doubts, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, I know it's about faith in Christ, and I know I'm supposed to trust his promises, but I just feel like I keep falling flat on my face. But I trust you, Lord, I trust you, but I, life, this is, life is hard and I'm struggling. This meal is for you. Because this meal helps you to remember that it's not about you, it's about Christ. Your hope is in him. Your assurance is in him. You rest in him. We pray, we'll take it together. Father, I praise you that it's not about me. 
And I confess that I so oftentimes try to make it about me. I praise you for your word that speaks loud and clear, reminding me, no, Jeremy, it's not about you. It is about Christ. It's about my son. Father, I praise you for your word that reminds me as I, as I struggle with my doubts and I struggle with my sin, I struggle with maybe just the lack of fruit or what I might think is not enough. When all these things that I struggle with, Father, you point me back to Christ each and every time and you promise me and you tell me through your Holy Spirit that I am your son. Father, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning. that we would trust your promises to be true, that if we are hanging our salvation on some decision we made, if we are hanging our salvation on some level of works that we have accomplished, something that we think that we can add to justify ourselves before you, I pray that you would convict us of that sin. But help us all, Father, in renewed awe of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a renewed sense of wonder that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you would help us to believe today. And to go on from this moment with an, an even greater level, an even sweeter assurance than we have had when we came this morning. To see Jesus Christ and him crucified for us and through him to taste and see that you are good. And to know that we have your blessing, that you call us blessed as those whose sins have been forgiven. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the love that you've poured out upon us through him. We worship you because of what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.